Hello, I'm Heat. And I'm Rocket Kid. And this is Ordinary Chaos. A podcast about ordinary life. Because you don't have to be famous to be interesting. What's normal for me might be unusual for me. Let's do this! Heat here with... Eric Whitehill, who is a composer and elementary school music teacher. And Eric, I think that those two things are inextricably linked is my, is my, for me, that's definitely true. I create when I see a need and I have many needs. (laughs) (laughs) So where did that start? Well, I think it started when I was a piano student as a middle school and high school kid. I was really interested in writing music. I didn't write much of it, but I was interested in it. And then I started writing things for the piano for myself to play. And then it sort of developed into writing pieces for people's recitals in college. And I took all of the composition classes that I could. And it just seemed logical that composing would become part of my teaching. And it has. And started writing choir music when I was a church musician for middle school choir because I couldn't find really good middle school level church choir music. And so that's kind of how it started. Like I can't find what I'm looking for, so I'm I'm going to create it. Yeah. And, you know, without being disrespectful to many people in my world that I know that write music, there's just a lot of credola being published there day is. after day, year after year. And I'm not suggesting that my music wouldn't be considered credola by someone else. <laughs> But I can say that, you know, especially looking for a specific niche like middle school or looking for elementary music for a choir that doesn't have too many butterflies and rainbows for my boy singers, you know, that sort of stuff. Not saying boys can't like butterflies and rainbows. I like both. But I'm just saying I I want stuff that is not just flowery substance, but something that the kids can relate to when they sing it. That makes sense. And it turns out to be lucky, maybe, that you're good at writing. Well, thanks. And I, I I appreciate that. I mean, I've been someone who pretty much my whole life that I remember has had some, or, I mean, I wouldn't say it's innate, but certainly my interest is innate. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm very pleased that what I do is functional both for me and then also for a greater market, <laughs> you know. Yes. One will hope that after the pandemic settles down, that publishing will return to somewhat of what it once was. Yes. Well, because as an elementary band teacher, there's a similar problem. I mean, it's, it's better now, but for a long time, there's just not a lot of good music, especially if you don't have good instrumentation, but I don't feel confident that I could fill that need. (laughs) But you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this when you said that I have a friend who's retired now, but he was a middle school band director in Mesa for many years. And he asked me one time if I would be interested in writing a piece for concert band for his bands to play. And I immediately agreed. And then I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I mean, I played in concert. I was a trombone player. I played in middle school band and elementary band and high school band. And I was a drum major and I played in jazz band and all the things, but I, I didn't have it in me. I didn't have a a middle school band piece. I mean, I wrote all kinds of things and none of it really kind of worked. And, I realized that, you know, I've found quite a bit of success in the things that I know that I use with what I exactly do. doesn't mean I can't be commissioned to write something that's outside of what I normally do, but I quickly discovered (laughs) 
that concert <laughs> band was not a medium <laughs> that I was going to successfully compose for. Now, that might be different now. I mean, this was, gosh, in the 90s. So you, you didn't miss your niche. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's just say I never thought I was going to be an elementary music teacher either. If you would have asked me in 1995, what will you be doing for a living? I would have laughed at you if you would suggest move to Arizona and teach children music. <laughs> well, what was the plan? Well, I mean, I went to Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, which is on the Iowa-Minnesota border on the eastern side of the state. And so Minneapolis is the nearest big city. I my When I went to college, I my first initial plan was to be a piano performance major, which is, for some people, a great idea. But for me, it was not. <laughs> and it became very clear very quickly that choir leadership was more where I was headed. And I really thought I was going to be a high school choir director. And probably in Minneapolis <laughs> would have been maybe my vision in 1995 when I was approaching my senior year. Then I got recruited for a church music job in Tempe. I would have never imagined in my wildest dreams. Life is funny that way, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed. <laughs> End up in all kinds of places you don't expect. It's the truth. Arizona was not in my plans either, and yet here I am. <laughs> well, I can say this, though. As a person who left and then came back very much on purpose, it does grow on you. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. So I know that you have music published, and Thank you have you. musicals published. Yes, I do. How did that like you wrote them for for your kids, right? As you talked yes. about already, and how did they come to be published? I guess I had built a relationship with Heritage Publishing and right, Heritage Music Press, which is part of Lorenz, because of my choral stuff. And once I mentioned something about creating musicals, because I was creating for my kids, because a there's no copyrights associated with things that I write, and b I can customize them to fit what we have. Easily, because I write them for what I have, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, both in difficulty level and length and content and, you know, orchestration and all of it. Um, but anyway, so the people at Heritage said, we'd love to see what you've done. So I sent them several things and they said, we like this one and they published it. Nice. So that's how it's, that's how it happened. And then, so I have two there that are, that are school ones. And then I have two church ones that are through Choristers Guild. And those came through my connections with Church Music Publishing, which is a whole different group of people. So I've got four four musicals out there in the world. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm excited for places to do performances in front of people again so that they could be, <laughs> again, lucrative in at least a small portion, uh, you know, for the 10% of the $50 per school that I get. So, you know, but regardless, not complaining. I understand royalties. I get it. I also know that all the companies right now are sort of holding on to every bit of income they have to sort of deal with the restructuring they're dealing with now. So sure. at any rate, I'm hoping. But the good thing about the stuff that I've done is that I've only ever sent things to publishers that have successfully happened already. You know what I mean? Right. Things that are sort of trialed. <laughs> They've gone through the trial and kids have enjoyed doing them. And But the world of publishing is just fickle and you never know what's going to sell and what's not. And the competition is large. I mean, not even mentioning COVID. I mean, it's just, a, it's a big field. But what they were interested in, because I've written upper elementary and lower elementary both. And they said, well, upper elementary isn't really marketable because Music Theater International 
you know, MTI Junior and all that, recognizable titles and all those things have sort of swallowed that market. But the K2 crowd, a little more need, a little less saturated market. Sure. So anyway, it's been fun. Yeah. You know, many, many directors have contacted me to say they've used the stuff, which is fun. Nice. Well, I imagine that even in the upper elementary, that 50 bucks is a lot more affordable than MTI. Well, and that was my argument with them is saying, you know, I think that monetarily, even if you charge double that, it's still cheaper by a lot, you know, than what MTI charges. I mean, MTI's products are, are great and they're really usable. And like I say, like people like hearing shows they're familiar with and that sort of thing. But right now the market just doesn't support unknown entities in the world of upper elementary theater. That doesn't mean it never will. You know, and I've self-published one of my shows because a friend of mine in Tucson at a school wanted to do it and wanted to figure out a way they could do a PO to get something of mine that wasn't published. So I self-published through Teachers Pay Teachers, which was an interesting experience. Oh, that is interesting. Because now you can sell MP3s and you can sell PDFs and anything you would need for a show. I mean, that was one of the things I've been thinking about for self-publishing in general. I mean, self-publishing is... I have friends that do it and I have friends that hate it. It just depends on who you talk to. Sure. I mean, taking the publisher out of the equation also means that the marketing is also taken out of the equation. Yes. I'm familiar with this problem. You are. And so, you know, it's great that you get a hundred percent of, you know, or nearly a hundred percent if you're paying for a website or whatever, but a larger percentage of the pie for every sale, but then you also have to factor in the hours and hours you're going to spend sending it to all your friends and hoping they're still your friends. <laughs> you know, yes. you run out of friends eventually. <laughs> you do. But on the other hand, I've put this thing out on teachers pay teachers and one person bought it and, you know, I made a couple hundred bucks and I, it cost me $0 to leave it sitting there. Right. It did cost me, I mean, I'm familiar with teachers, pay teachers, you have to pay a little bit to be a vendor through them, but it's still, it's not very much. So one of the, the things that is noteworthy, maybe, about your musicals is that there are not stars. That's true. I mean, I, I very intentionally don't, well, I was trying to figure out how to say that. Uh, you know, when your performers are an entire grade level, and you're saying that you want everyone to participate and it's part of your grade because it's the thing we're doing in music this quarter. I feel like everybody needs to have fun stuff to do. And, you know, when you try out for a musical, you know, a community theater or something and you get a chorus part and you get to work with all these really fantastic people that are maybe outside of your you know, immediate circles, that's one thing. But if I'm going to say this whole grade level has to participate, I want them all to have the cool part. So I figure let's let's not take away from the performers the cool songs and just have one person sing it. Sure. I mean, it's sort of a church music thing, I feel like, too. Like, if you're going to have music in the season of the church year, you know, Christmas, say, and you have the choir sing all the familiar songs and then don't give the congregation those songs to sing, I think you've sort of missed part of the boat. You know, it's the same. I don't want any kid to feel like they weren't given an opportunity to sing. So we talk about how everybody in the show is acting every song as if you are the character that is singing it and you get to play all the characters. 
So, you know, if it's, if it's a villainous character, a mean character that's going to sing, you know, I stole the dog's bone or whatever the hap- the story happens to be, I want all the kids to have mean looks on their face and to breathe like a mean person would breathe and look like a mean person would look. And and that's part of the joy of teaching that is getting giving them all that opportunity. Now, I do have somebody in a costume on the stage who's gesturing when the song is happening, but they're not singing by themselves, which pr- removes a need for amplifying them. And also... It's just as effective when you're talking about five-year-olds here. <laughs> I, I, I would rather have the entire body of kids all sing together and feel super competent than, you know, even if the kid freezes on the stage, the song goes on, you know, <laughs> there's 132 <laughs> people singing it. Well, and that also eliminates people remembering 30 years later. You know, when I was in kindergarten, I tried out for this part and I didn't get it. Well, I mean, there is some of that no matter what, because I'm going to have one kid from each class or whatever have a costume part. They may not have solos, but they still get to be on the stage and have a unique thing that no one else gets to have for that character, you know. But I also think teaching kids how to process auditioning and not getting the thing you want is a big, big part of the teaching of doing a show in the first place, because that's life. We don't get everything we try for. We don't. Nobody does. And, you know, for the, a lot of the kids, they're like, you mean you tried out for something, Mr. White? Like, you didn't get it? I'm like, many times, <laughs> many, <laughs> many times. But that's like mind blowing for them. They just can't imagine. So there's a lot of good teaching to happen there. And we talk about, you know, well, we can't have 14 Braden Bears in our show. You know, what would you do if you were me? How would you choose kids? What, what do you think are the important things? I mean, th- I mean, there's all kinds of conversations you can have there that I think have merit. It's true. Teaching kids to be well-rounded in lots of ways. One of those ways is to, you know, when you don't get the thing you want, what do you do? Yes. And I feel like that's heavier in our field than many. Well, it's certainly incumbent upon arts teachers to help kids learn how to do that, I think. For sure. But, you know, we talk about, you know, every kid who wants to be in the, you know, soccer team or the whatever. I mean, you can come up with lots of non-arts examples of trying for things that you don't that you may not get. Yes. And how do you deal with disappointment? Disappointment is fine. What do you do with it? It's the question. But in a lot of those spaces, there's not an adult who is going to work through the aftermath of that with them. Right. And that's one of the things too about, you know, if I do a show in say October, I'm with these kids for another six years. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just kidding, but I'm just saying, but there is something to be said about being sort of, I mean, responsible is not quite the right word, but at least being responsive to kids who are having difficulty with that process. But I also know that by doing the shows the way I do them, the kids all get to do more, no matter what their role is. And when they're five, like I say, I just I mean, A, I don't have enough five-year-olds who can handle singing solo parts by themselves. I don't. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they do at the, I don't know, Phoenix Boys Choir School or whatever, but I'm just saying I, I don't. And, you know, it's really fun. And I love auditioning kids and teaching them what an audition is. And of course, you know, if they're not talking in their role, you know, the audition is things like, look mean, jump up and down, <laughs> gesture like you're talking, you know, you would probably be entertained by a video of such thing. I, I totally would be because five-year-olds are great. They are. I love them to death. And I love them even more when I am not responsible for their learning. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I was talking about this with somebody earlier this week about kindergarten, because I really like kindergarten. I mean, I have for years and years. But one of the things about kindergartners is that after one half an hour has it gone, I say bye and they walk out the door. 
So usually, not always, but usually what I get is an eager half hour with them. And then they go away. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. I was talking with my principal. We did our whole signing signing out of classrooms end of the year stuff on yesterday afternoon. And I was telling him my input for next year's schedule. And I said, you know, if you would like to schedule me for kindergarten lunch, I, I would take that. And he wrote it down. So my guess is, <laughs> I don't know that there's a lot of people that say, you know what I want? 132 five-year-olds for lunch, but you know, we shall see who knows what will happen. Um, but I do know I'm planning on having a grade level performance for every grade level in next year. So kindergartners included. Good times. Yes. So of all the stuff you've written, do you have a favorite? I mean, I like different things for different reasons. I think my first musical, I, I, it has, has a, an emotion factor on the end that has caught many people, which uh, I enjoy that something I created has any emotional impact. But Panda and the Moon is the name of it. And it's about a little panda who doesn't want to be a panda anymore. And he tries being lots of other things and it doesn't work for him. And the moon is his friend and his guide. And there's a little moment at the end where little clumps and little throats Nice. I like that. I mean, also, um, the Phoenix Children's Chorus commissioned me to write a choral piece, oh my goodness, in 2006 or something. And I wrote a piece for them, and then they performed it at a festival with 400 people singing. And I was there, and that was very, very cool. And then that piece is published. and That would be pretty amazing. That's another thing that I really enjoyed. I like writing. I like writing for people. And a lot of times the people are my people, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but I like the idea of trying to meet a need. And like I said, it doesn't have to just be my own need, but I find a lot of satisfaction in anything I've creating being used in a way that's meaningful and successful wherever it is. Through this whole pandemic, while school and music and teaching and performing was very much not what we usually do. Did you create things for online? Did you stop creating? Were you just keeping your head above water with all, like, <laughs> how did that look with you and your creativity? Truthfully, I mean, the short answer is I didn't really create much of anything. And I thought that I would. And it's taken me a while to sort of let go of any guilt that I feel for not being more creative than usual in this crazy time. But I mean, as far as online teaching goes, I mean, I I tried lots of different things, but I wouldn't say that I was writing music per se. I mean, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about it. The first quarter of the year, I didn't teach live streamed at all. All specials in my district were asynchronous. And so creating materials outside of real time of kids doing it. And uh, after that, we had... I don't know what it was, four weeks, maybe three weeks where we were all, t- we were back in person again before we all went digital again. And the classes that didn't come back were now to be live streamed for the first time. This would have been right at the beginning of second quarter, I think. Anyway, I realized as I turned on my, my camera and got my Google Classroom all going that I had never done it before. Now, their teachers have been doing it for a quarter. I had just assumed just hit the thing and away you go. And I had all these things that I wanted to do and pretty much none of them worked. 
And the kid's behavior was all over the place and I didn't know how to manage it. I didn't even know what expectations I should have, let alone how to function adequately as an educator. And after two days of it, I was like, you know what? Baristas have pretty good benefits. <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't imagine that it was something that I could continue to do for any period of time. It just, I was so frustrated and burned out. It had been two days. I'd had something like, you know, 11 classes and I just didn't want any more. And so a friend of mine in Virginia said to me, you know, think of it this way. If you were invited into the kid's home, what would they, what would they want to do? And it wouldn't be, you know, immediately attentive to lesson planning. And uh, I'm going to give you articulate feedback. No, it's not that. It would be, I want to see, I want you to see my trampoline and my dog and my sister and my favorite Lego set. And okay. So he said, you know, just have some share time. Trust me. And so I did. And I ultimately had share time every half an hour lesson I did for the rest of the school year. And by the, giving the kids <laughs> permission to do all of the things basically that they're not allowed to do while you're teaching for part of class made it a lot easier to redirect them. So, you know, you know what, would you put that food down for right now or put down your pet rabbit for right now? You can have it during share time in 15 minutes, but right now we're focused on clapping this ta and TT video or whatever it was. And to be able to say, fine, but not yet is way more pleasant than no, no pets, no dogs, no food, no pudding, whatever. Um, also, my very last online class, kids were doing all kinds of things that I didn't want them to do. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> you can have all the pudding you want. <sighs> I'll tell you what, I don't think I felt a weight lift off of me more in my career than when I clicked out of my very last ever online class. And so, but to answer your question, you know, I, I really didn't, I didn't feel, I didn't feel the compulsion to create much of anything. And I thought I would, I'm like with all this time, you know, but it turns out you need more than time. Exactly that. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't that I was sitting here, you know, in the fetal position and, you know, quivering the entire time but I just I would sit down to the piano and go not only do I not feel like writing anything I don't even feel like sitting here interesting I mean I mean you might imagine I have in this room I don't know 500 piano books probably and I love them all but I just would sit down and go I don't want to build a snowman nope not at all <laughs> or you know <laughs> So at any rate, now I'm feeling like I'm at a place where that's much more likely. And then I also see need in the future. And I'm like, well, I'm going to have first graders that need a musical next year. So I think that the, the motivation will come back. And then I'm really hoping that I can either establish relationships with new editors or perhaps all the ones that have been let go in the last six months will be rehired. <laughs> so we'll see. Hey, all you choral directors out there, buy lots of printed music tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> or actually in all genres of printed music, buy lots. Yes. Good 40, 50 pieces each. That'll help a lot. If we had the budget to do so. I understand. <laughs> uh. I think about that too with budget things. I'm like, somebody just told me like, I just paid for this orchestra. I'm like, that's my budget for four years. You know, Right. <laughs> I've had plenty of jobs where I had no budget. Yeah. Like, well, where do I get money to do this? Oh, you don't. 
Yep. Uh, I'm very thankful. My my district, my current district, definitely does. Have, I mean, it's not a giant amount of money, but it's some money. And sure. I'm thankful for that. And I'm also thankful I have a lot of equipment. So my needs, I mean, it's not like I need to buy thousands of dollars worth of equipment every year. I'm very fortunate to be in a room that has a lot of equipment already in it, you know, and things that you spend budget on. But, but yes. So anyway, like I say, should you have budgetary possibility <laughs> buy paper music, please, world? So in normal times, what would you say is your biggest frustration in any part of this process? Well, I mean, multiple things in that. I mean, I guess my number one frustration with me is I tend to be trying to think of 17 things at the same time. And I sit down and play four chords and like, oh, wait, I've got to wash the dishes or, oh, wait, you know what? I don't have any soap. So I go to the store to buy soap to wash the dishes before I do this. And then, oh, wait, I don't have gas. So I got to go, you know how this works, right? And <laughs> I, eventually I totally you've done 46 steps, but you've written nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I literally have to sit on my hands and say, you are not getting up from this chair until, well, sitting on my hands is sort of counterproductive when you're writing for the piano, but regardless, not getting up from the bench yes. until I have accomplished some milestone of creating, like writing the lyrics for this section or figuring out the clarinet part for that section or whatever. And if, if you are similar, then as soon as you get working. Then you forget to eat meals. <laughs> right. Yep, that's exactly what happens to me. So like, you have to understand, I'm not a person that misses meals easily. But yeah, suddenly I'm working on a thing and I'm like, oh, wait, I just got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do this. And I look up and it's nine o'clock p.m. and I have not eaten since noon. So yes, you're right. That is definitely, there's there's multiple sides. But if I had to be frustrated with things in the genre of other people's compositions, I would say that for me, the biggest pet peeves I have are inappropriate range for the age group with which you work, and then trying to find texts that have, I don't necessarily have the same voice as the child, but at least something that if I'm going to put them, you know, in front of an audience and words are going to come out of their mouth, that those words would have some meaning to them. So that when they deliver those words, that the people listening will realize that there is some intent behind what is chosen for them to hear. And so I think there's a lot of people that think that pop music is the only music that can engage young people, whether they're high schoolers or whether they're elementary. And that really isn't true. And it really undersells them, you know? So I find that a lot of pop music is not written in keys that are very conducive to child voice. Right. Cause it's not who they're written for. Well, right. So, <laughs> I mean, one of the classic examples I'll use is let it go. Let it go is a very effective song in frozen but it's not sung by a seven-year-old. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, th that particular song, I mean, the, the lore is that Idina Menzel could never do the whole song in one take. So what you're hearing is the best of many takes when she's singing it, you know, and because the song is ridiculous for range. And like I said, what they ended up with in the movie is great, but that's not a song that I think any child should be singing. And not because of the message in it is terrible, but because the range is totally off. I find that kids, when they tell me what pieces they like, it's generally not pop. Now, there's exceptions to that. When I did How Far I'll Go from Moana, that was hands down everyone's favorite. I could have played that song 150 times. They would have sung it 150 times in a row and been happy as clam. But also, that song is much more reasonable for range. And the message in it is great. 
but it's also very rhythmic. And one of the things that's really hard for kids in pop too, aside from range, is that, you know, when a solo artist sings it, they can sing whatever they want. And I'm sure that Britney Spears does not sing her songs with the exact same notes every single night and the exact same rhythms. Of course not. And so to get 70 people to do simultaneous, very syncopated rhythms, I mean, rhythms that are way beyond anything they could write down or understand. I also don't want you just to sing songs that have quarter notes and eighth notes either. I mean, I think sometimes people put a little bit too much stock in what little kids can do with sight singing, but that's just my opinion. I think there's a time and a place for teaching kids literacy and that that's your main goal. And if they can't diagram it and write what beat each thing is on, then you're giving them inappropriate music. I don't think that's true. I think part of it too is they have really good ears and they can imitate quickly. And that just because they're imitating something without reading it doesn't mean there aren't standards to be taught here about how to deliver it in tone quality and dynamics and all the things. At any rate, one of my biggest frustrations is that there's a lot of arrangements of pop things that are being sort of the the mainstay of the market. And I, I think there's a lot more out there. And I think kids like a lot of different things. I think a soaring melody line in a range that's comfortable is something they find much more pleasing than trying to do the latest Disney thing arranged by somebody at Hell Leonard. So, you know, <laughs> P.S. I love my friends at Hell Leonard. <laughs> no offense meant... You know, my general music teachers who have fed into my band programs have always been like, oh, well, you know, when the kids get to you, they'll be able to read this and read this and read this. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, I can teach them to read. I want them to enjoy it and Mm -hmm. to be able to keep a steady beat and to understand the difference between high and low and to understand that high and low and loud and soft are not synonyms. I think that if they know all the stuff but hate doing it, I think you failed as a teacher. One of my big goals as a teacher is that I never want a different teacher to have to unteach something that I taught. (laughs) Yes. Now I'm not saying I can, I can't guarantee that that doesn't happen, but I just would like to think that I'm pretty careful about if I am going to bother to teach a thing that they're going to do it in a way that is correct in my estimation of correctness anyway. But then I also think that you can do a lot of damage to a singing kid if you put something in their mouth that doesn't make sense for them to sing and that they don't they don't feel comfortable singing and that they don't want to sing a thing that i think is important too as we choose our lit that we choose lit that's going to make kids draw in not kids push away now i'm not saying you shouldn't stretch them because probably another factor most years is that the kids tell me the things that they thought they would like and the things they ultimately liked the best are usually not the same. So it it proves to me that there is some need to expose them to things that are outside of their little box of top 40 or whatever and give them a chance to experience it so that they can know if they like it or not. I mean, it's sort of like the 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 parent who, you know, just try the carrots. Just try them. You know? <laughs> but I also think that there's a limit to how far you should push. And if you happen to really love Bach, that doesn't mean that <laughs> forcing your likes on the children are going to help. So it's it's sort of a balance between finding things that you know that they don't know that you're going to put in front of them because they need to be exposed to it. But also to sort of understand that to have them sing something that they can't relate to in any way. 
it's a balance. I mean, I, I don't mean to say you shouldn't do any song that, you know, has some outside of the box for them stuff in it. But, but there's a difference between making that your program and doing a piece like that. Fair. Well, choosing literature, I think, is a very underrated. I mean, how would I put this? I think people should spend more time on it. How's that? Yes. I think that as we talk about priorities for what I like and what I don't like, I think that part of it, too, is that people need to spend more time searching, planning, thinking, brainstorming, trying different combinations in their minds and think about A, your performer, and then think about B, your audience, and then think about C, the amount of time you have. Yes. I think that there are a fair number of people who don't spend enough time doing that. Agreed. Which is why a lot of music that I would say is not necessarily the best for kids and things gets purchased so much because people would rather just shortcut with what they see as the trend as opposed to really thinking about what they want the kids to do and learn and experience and take away. That makes sense. But your program lives and dies on what you program. Yeah. And the other thing is, at least the way I also think about it, like if I program something, we're starting it in August, we're performing it in December. I'm going to live in that song <laughs> with this group of students for weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> and so, like I said, it's all about balance. Not only does it have to be something that's appropriate for the kids, but you have to think about your own mental health as well. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's why my kids so rarely played holiday songs. Because beginning band, that you need to start in September. Yeah. If you're going to play it by December, and I'm I'm not willing to do that. Yeah, and same. I mean, and, and I mean, aside from the fact that we have such an a diversity of people who celebrate and you know put higher priorities on many different things, and I don't want. I mean, I don't want to do one Hanukkah song and one you know Ramadan song and one whatever. I don't think that's good either, because then it becomes tokenism, and you don't want that. But at the same time. I think it's okay to do some of that, some holiday things. But yeah, if I'm going to do any holiday pieces, I mean, it might be one out of six. Yes. You know, that's reindeer boogie or whatever, you know. <laughs> I mean, every once in a while, you have to remember, you are teaching elementary school. You do puppets for a living, White Hill. I mean, it's okay if you do a silly song once in a while, but I spend many hours with puppets. It says a lot about my mental health. And I mean that in the best, best of possible ways. You know, I learned with my son that he will talk to a puppet and tell a puppet things that he will not tell me, mm -hmm. even as he can see me. Right. He's fully aware. With the puppet on I've my I've never hand. met a group of children who ever thought any puppet I had was anything other than a puppet. But yet they'll ask for it. They'll interact with it. They'll, yes, you're right. It's amazing. It's You're right. You know, and of course I've written in... <laughs> in multiple places that it's important that when you do use a puppet in an academic setting, that there are academic reasons <laughs> that are, you know, <laughs> objectives that are covered by that puppet. And otherwise I don't want to just be infotainment. I mean, there has to be some purpose method, right. but that method can be nothing more than getting kids to laugh on a day where they really need it. You know, and I have one puppet that will only respond if you sing to it in head voice, you know, things like that. And I can get them to sing anything, you know, what's your favorite color? I mean, you never know what they're <laughs> going to do. Or if I said, please sing a solo right now, they would probably fall over and pass out. But if they're singing, what's your favorite color on So Me and Law to a puppet, they do. It's different. 
Yes, it is. I mean, another really fun thing to do with a puppet is you have puppets that you let kids play with. I mean, my good puppets, I, I, I don't, they're not good to wash them. So I don't let kids handle them for the most part. But I have some puppets that are designed for that purpose that are maybe a little less valuable. <laughs> and, you know, but having them behind a, the piano and hold the puppet up and then sing as the puppet. They will sing beautifully and the kids are only five feet away from their audience, but something about it. My last question for you is, is there anything that you wish that people, the general people understood about your work or the path or the, the behind the scenes of creating and publishing that they don't know? Like they're looking through a catalog and they're like, oh, this is 50 bucks or whatever. That's a great question. I'd like, to think that what I've created has already served a purpose before it gets to a publisher. And so you can sort of assume that if my name is on it, that it's successfully done what it's supposed to do with someone. That's not 100% true. I mean, there's some things that I just wrote and sent in and they accepted that had no <laughs> performances at all, uh, at least not before they got the music at the publishing house. But one of the things that I, I have, I've talked about self-publishing and buying other people's self-published stuff. One thing about having a really good editor at a publishing company though, it really does guarantee some at least modicum of usefulness or uh, some other professional person has looked at it and said that they think it will work. I think there's some value in that. I think it removes some steps of having to wonder if it could function. That doesn't mean to say everything <laughs> that's edited by a professional editor is appropriate for your group, but I'm just saying I like that an editor has gone through my music and I like other people to know that an editor <laughs> has gone through my music <laughs> as they're looking at trusting especially if they don't know my work or know me that they can assume that if Doug Wagner edited my work and it's published through heritage, that at least it has some modicum of quality usefulness. So I guess if I wanted somebody to know about my work, I'd want them to know that I really have made the choices that I make when I write things based on experience. Because you're writing for my own kids, kids a lot of the time. not just writing to try to get it published. So, And, and I, I've done that too you know, all of us have that, are, you know, that hobby publish. I mean, but at the same time, most of the work that I've done has already been sort of trialed by fire. So you can assume that it has some functionality. How about that? That works. So people want to buy your stuff. Where can they find it? Most of my things are at Heritage Music Press and they have their own website, but then they, I, they also market through a lot of other places, including J.W. Pepper and West Music. And so a lot of my stuff is at J.W. Pepper. Well, I think all of my published work is at J.W. Pepper. But then you can go to the individual websites or the individual you know packets or whatever from Heritage and from Choristers Guild are my two major publishers. I also have a website, whitehill-composer.com. And... I don't market myself. I just have links to all the other places that sell that stuff. Probably my highest recommendation would be to go to the publisher directly because a higher percentage of the profit from the purchase goes to the publisher when you do it that way. Oh, that makes sense. JW Pepper is an awesome company, but they take a cut because that's how they live. Right. And I'm not saying don't buy from Pepper because 
<laughs> I personally <laughs> have purchased from Pepper very, very many times because they're fast. That's the thing about them that's so amazing. They have a giant catalog and then they're super fast. And they'll, sh- they'll ship you partial shipments when things aren't all in too, which I oh, think nice. is also really pretty great. But anyway, so yeah, whitehill-composer.com. You can find links to everything. Excellent. It has been a blast talking to you today. Thank you so much. You bet. My pleasure. Our editor is Heat G Check, co-editor Rocket Kid, produced by Heat G Check. To learn more about me, Heat, or more about this podcast, go to OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com. Sound design and recording by Keith Kelly. You can learn more about Keith and his work at www.keithbkelly.com. Co-brain Storm by Rocket Kid and Cat Girl. Ordinary Chaos is an ad-free podcast. Because ads are annoying. To support the podcast, go to OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening! listening. <laughs> <laughs>